Thank you, Robbie and Joshua. These beautiful songs that remind us of the centrality of Christ, the excellency of the gift, the beauty of the life. This week we've been on a journey looking at the message of Christ as the solid rock on which we stand, built on the rock. I find myself singing this song that's been our theme song, and in some measure, it'll be a little sad not to gather night by night. This morning will be the last of these presentations. It's entitled, Built on the Rock, the Cost of Discipleship. Let's pray. Lord, we don't want to mishandle the gift. We don't want to be found peddling the gospel. We want to stand in awe of the amazing riches that are embodied in Christ Jesus, your thought made audible, the expression of your very person. So I'm praying now, Lord, in the few moments we have to open the word, that our hearts would be open and that we would accept this invitation to follow. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Year February 1906, a young man was born by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He would become instrumental in establishing what would be called the Confessing Church. He would be one of the first and the for foremost voices against the seduction of Germany by the ministry of evil led by Adolf Hitler. He could have skipped the trauma. He could have enjoyed the privileges of his intellectual giftedness. He need not stay or return to Germany from his various trips. But he came there out of a sense of duty and a call of God. He was one of the first to vociferously announce opposition to the election of the Fuhrer. Two days after Adolf Hitler was brought into power, he was preaching on a national radio address attacking Hitler and warning Germany of the seduction of this new cult, idolatrous cult, led by the Fuhrer. In the midst of the radio broadcast, it was cut off. It's not known whether or not it was the regime. He was accused of participating in a plot to kill Hitler and placed in the Tegel prison in 1943. And just before the Nazi regime collapsed, he was hanged on April 9, 1945, having given the last full measure of his devotion to his principles and his beliefs. 
1937 book, The Cost of Discipleship, has been a widely influential book in the realms of Christianity, and it might be good if it was brought back to prominence today. This morning, I will do some of that in this message. The last of a journey examining what a consumer-minded culture with unfettered consumer appetites has brought to many consumer-minded churches in the name of what we call the church growth movement. Now, this local church and many Seventh-day Adventist churches have not subscribed to this idea of marketing the gospel where there can be a mutually beneficial transaction. We give something to the community. The community gives us something back. What is it that they give back? It's attendance. It's a chance to talk to them. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's accolades. Sometimes in the largesse of the crowds, it's a false sense of success. But the idea that the church is in business is anathema to the very first chapters of the Bible and the very last sentiments of grace. And so as we've examined the problems that inhabit both the methods and the theology of this supposedly new era of success for the church, I must tell you this morning that there is no other entity responsible for the destruction of the Protestant denominations that have imbibed this method than the practitioners of the church growth movement. And some five or six years ago in the fall, when people were questioning at the 500th anniversary of the nailing of the 95 Thesis to the church door in Wittenberg, many were asking, is the Protestant Reformation dead? The answer is no, but has it been delivered a potentially fatal wound? The answer is yes, and yet out of the ashes of self-inflicted, self-focused church and evangelistic methods, there will be and is still a remnant that will announce the great gospel invitation to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. If you think Seventh-day Adventist is beyond the reach of this consumer-minded mentality, I just want you to know that every time you cater to your own concepts of preference and convenience and view the church as a place with offerings, some of which you will take advantage of and some of which you will not, and of course not every ministry is for everyone, But the idea that somehow the church exists for us as opposed for the glory of God and the salvation of the lost has infused itself in many a congregation which sits idly and nominally and apathetically by watching society implode through the absence of the Spirit of God in the culture and the hearts of its leaders. So this morning I, I must, I am compelled to tell you the premise of this last message and then take you through it and hope you can reflect on it and understand it and embrace it. So this false philosophy, this deceptive and vain philosophy, which is destroying the spiritual future of millions and the living hope of thousands and tens of thousands in the present, you cannot have a religion based on self-interest and know the glory and the beauty of a call to selflessness. 
You cannot feed on the carnal heart in hopes that somehow it will produce the renewed mind and the divine nature. You cannot allow yourself to consider the world's methods and structures of you give me something and I'll give you something. And if it doesn't suit me and doesn't do anything for me, well, I'm washing my hands on it. I want to tell you today that a crossless religion is not only the reconfiguring of all Christian theology and lifestyle and practice, it is the destruction of the church. It is the highest order of abomination in the very name of God. There is nothing that epitomizes and captures the fullness of all that can ever be said about God than that dark day in that dark place where his dark-minded leaders of the church snuffed out his own very life, the expression of his most audible thought. In the name of reaching the lost, a crossless religion has been presented to the world and they have bought it hook, line, and sinker and the world has evangelized the church. Your children, your spouse, your parents, your friends, your work associates must not be engaged on the platform of a crossless Christ. Your church cannot be made strong. Your young people cannot be discipled or converted or nerved or called to be in an army rightly trained without knowing from the very beginning what a great indebtedness is theirs and what a great giver and redeemer and sacrificer is their dear Lord Jesus Christ. To take the cross out of Christian theology is to blot the sun from the cosmos. Yet it has been done and is being done supposedly in the name of success over and over again, offering a costless, Christless grace. And so this morning, I want to say again, a religion in which the cross is not prominent will completely disfigure that religion and make it into something else, and it has no power to transform and remake those who possess it, the cost of discipleship. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. This is Bonhoeffer, first few pages of his book. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jack wares. You could almost think he was writing in the 21st century. His book is almost 100 years old now. The marketplace mentality, the church as a business motif and modality, it's almost as if prophetically he's looking into the future and telling us grace will someday be sold like cheap jack wares. The sacraments of forgiveness, sin, and the consolation of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands. And this is true. But not without asking questions and without fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. 
This is what the world wants. And you can almost hear it in the book of Romans when Paul says, because we're forgiven and we experience this grace, should we go on sinning so that grace can abound? God forbid, he writes. So echoes the sentiments of Bonhoeffer. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance. And because it's been paid in advance, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using it and spreading it are infinite, what would grace be if it were not cheap? Grace, cheap grace, means grace is a doctrine. I want every one of my brothers and sisters this morning to be paying attention to this slide. A principle, a system, an intellectual assent to the idea is held to be itself sufficient to secure the remissions of sins. Not true. If such a church, in such a church, the world finds a cheap covering for its sins, no contrition is required, still any less desire to be delivered from sin. Cheap grace, therefore, amounts to a denial of the living Word of God. In fact, a denial of the incarnation. Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. I want you to mull over those words. The justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Think the modern church growth movement. Think the church as a business marketing dynamic where somehow we, I don't know how we ever came to this conclusion that we actually had anything as an enemy to offer God. Grace alone does everything, they say, and so everything can remain as it was before. Let the Christian rest content with his worldliness and with this renunciation of any higher standard than the world. Listen, we're to be renouncing the world, not renouncing a higher standard than the world. This is what we mean by cheap grace, the grace which amounts to the justification of sin without justification of the repentant sinner who departs from sin and from whom sin departs. Cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the toils of sin. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly grace because it cost a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. 
It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. And it is costly grace. This is the incarnation of God. Grace is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. It is grace because Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now a quote from the Desire of Ages. How then are we to be saved? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man has been lifted up, will be lifted up. It has been in the, in the day she wrote it. And everyone who has been deceived and bitten by the serpent may look and live. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. The light shining from the cross reveals the love of God. His love is drawing us to himself. From the cross, the snake on the pole. If we do not resist this drawing, we shall be led to the foot of the cross in repentance for the sins that have crucified the Savior. Then the Spirit of God, through faith, produces a new life in the soul. That is, after the repentance, the thoughts and the desires are brought into obedience to the will of Christ. The heart, the mind are created anew in the image of him who works in us to subdue all things to himself. Then the law of God is written in the mind and the heart, and we can say with Christ, I delight to do thy will. So take your Bibles and open, if you would, to the book of Numbers, chapter 21. Numbers, chapter 21. We have to go to this seminal moment. It is not the beginning of the gospel, but it is the unavoidable conclusion and summation of what the gospel involves. Numbers, chapter 21, three or four short verses, a not-so-out-of-the-way moment in the experience of Israel little in narrative space, small in the amount of ink on the white page and ink on the scroll, but large in the sense of explaining what this gospel is and what the cost of discipleship is and how the transaction from sinner to saint is made. Numbers chapter 21, verse 6. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. These fiery serpents were all throughout their wilderness wanderings, but through divine intervention, they were subdued and restrained. And the, to the delight of the nation of Israel, those 40 years in the wilderness, they went in and out of their tent without being bitten by the snakes. Verse 7. But so the people came to Moses and they said, We've sinned. Pause. We've sinned because we've spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. In the midst of that journey of prayer, God decides, like Abraham on Mount Moriah, to prefigure what salvation would cost, what it would be, and how it would work. And just like Abraham with the knife in his hands in Genesis 22, here in Numbers 1, we're going to get an insight in what this gospel transaction will look like and how it will work these four short 
verses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Now take your Bibles and turn over to probably the most preeminent, preeminent gospel verse and preeminent gospel chapter in all of the Scriptures, John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, Jesus, who will be the serpent on the cross, he will become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, the repulsive, the, the repugnant dynamics of death and dying embodied in the cursed, slivering snake. An image of our Savior, perhaps even an image of us. John chapter 3, verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. And for some reason, in a not so flattering, certainly not positively transactional moment, certainly not consumer-grade religion, Jesus answered and said unto him, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We're going to talk about the kingdom of God. We're going to talk about coming and going. We're going to talk about what it means to get there, Nicodemus. I'm not responding to your compliment. This won't be a mutually transactional, favorable, flattery moment. Unless you're born again, preeminent of the teachers, you will not be able to see the kingdom of God. And there's a whole lot more he can't see. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Cannot enter a second time into a mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly I say unto you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed that I said unto you, you must be born again of water and the Spirit, we might add. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus sat there dumbfounded. How can these things be? What does it mean to be born of the water and the Spirit? Nicodemus didn't have to go too long to connect the dots. There was only one preeminent figure in all of Israel that was doing something with the water, and the Spirit was in him. He was a man by the name of John the Baptist. And those scribes and Pharisees that came to John were confronted with a message that they were a brood of vipers and they must bear Fruits worthy of repentance. And Nicodemus was not willing to look into that visage and view that snake on a pole. He was not willing to see himself embodied in the one that was calling to a life of repentance and holiness, anything about his life that suggests a need for what the Baptist was offering. And yet Jesus would say, you don't understand and you can't explain. But anybody can tell which direction the wind is blowing from and you can't even see heaven moving on the face of this nation. How can these things be, verse 9? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel? 
and you don't understand this? Truly, I say unto you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? There is a breakthrough moment that's going to have to come for Nicodemus when he can see that what this whole experience is about is tremendous, costly grace to God, and it'll be at the expense of all of heaven, and the expensiveness will be required because of the very sin that started this trauma in the garden. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world, most precious verse in the Bible, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever will look, no, it doesn't say that, does it? And yet it does. Whoever will look, and see what they really are and what they've really done and what they're really capable of and believe that that serpent on the cross, he who knew no sin would become sin, whoever could see it and embrace it and have a, a little twinkling of honesty in their spiritual heart could believe that someone might dare die, no, not for the righteous, but for the enemies, for the ungodly, and that he might not have to perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but the world might be saved through him. And the verse we always skip is verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. Glory, hallelujah. But he who does not believe is standing in condemnation. They are judged already because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This, my friends, is an indictment that none can escape. And when the church offers some kind of supposed transactional, quasi-legalistic relationship to God where the, the world is not arraigned before the bar of justice in the shadow of the cross, there can be no conversion, there can be no transformation, and there surely shall not be any costly grace. This is the judgment that light has come into the world but people don't want to look at it. Men loved turning away from that light rather than the light, for their deeds were and are evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in, by, and through his Redeemer, God. Can a church really bear to transact business in anything but the name of Jesus Christ and him crucified? Did not our dear Apostle Paul attempt to embrace an alternative method appealing to the intellectualism of the Greeks 
in Athens? Did he not come away thoroughly convinced of his failure and confident that for as much offense and as much mockery and shame that it would bring upon him and all those who chose to follow his dear Savior, that it would be the only word, the only way, the only motif, the only method, the only statements and life laws and identity. But we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Turn over to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. I want you to understand, don't bring anybody to church ever that you don't think is ready to make a journey as to what the cross does and the methods of heaven are. And if we have any doubt about whether or not the disciples got it, Acts chapter 2 assures us they did. The wind is blowing. The sound is heard. The people have gathered. And the sermon is on. Verse 14, But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice, and he declared to them, some of them enemies that had taken the very life of his best friend and Savior Jesus Christ, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. You're not going to be able to reconfigure this. Nobody here is drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. But this is what it was spoken through the prophet Joel, those pesky prophets who came to the people of God and called for repentance. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I'll pour forth my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Go down to verse 21, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. We're going to have to look at the snake on the tree again. Here we go. Jesus of Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, and of course, by nature and character and love and beneficence, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. Look at the cross. I'm not here, Peter says, to proffer something to you that takes away the centrality of the transaction, which is you're an enemy of God. You're at odds with the universe. You're damned and you're lost. And unless you can see the truth and you're willing to hear the voice of the Spirit convicting you of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, there is no future. But remember that all who call on the name of the Lord, who are in great eternal indebtedness, will be saved. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were, as we could expect, pierced all the way to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what must we do? And Peter said to them, repent, each of you, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and your children 
And for all who are far off, and as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. I want to assure you this morning, friends, that we are to be the most sinner-sensitive people on the face of the planet. If Jesus could live he leave heaven to come to this earth in search of you and me, lost as we were, eternally lost, how could it be that somehow we would have a religion of convenience and transact in the name of grace transactions of convenience with the churches of business proffering out in supposed mutually beneficial things to the sinner and to God, which is a complete denial of the absolute transaction of eternal value done on behalf of those who had nothing to offer and were worse than that. They are and were until they received this guilty of taking the life of the life giver and the redeemer and the restorer. Our church services are not evangelistic series where we remake what the unconverted would desire in a church service in order to build a bridge to God. No, the bridge has already been built. It is the love, the life, and the surrender of Jesus Christ. And our worship services are to be moments not so undifferent than Moses in the wilderness or Jesus with Nicodemus or the apostles with the murderers of Christ. We are all transactioners of the cross. Yes, it was done by us, and praise God, as John Stott says, the great Anglican theologian, when we can see it was done by us, we can know and receive the fact that it was done for us. No, the Reformation is not dead, but the devil is alive and well. And you cannot have a transactional consumer mindset and enter into some supposed cheap grace agreement with the church and think everything's okay because the church can't save you. Only Jesus, who has made the infinite sacrifice, can do this and praise God, glory, hallelujah. If God be for us, who can be against us and what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing, nothing, nothing. And this morning, friends, we are to study to show ourselves approved and we are supposed to understand that this grace is costly. Costly because it cost Jesus everything. And we're to go forward knowing that if he be lifted up from the earth, he will draw all men. And like written in the cover of my Bible, everything noble and generous in a man will respond to the contemplation of Christ upon the cross. The bridge has been built already, friends. Glory, hallelujah. It's Jacob's ladder. It's Jesus stretching out his arms and grabbing mercy and justice and bringing them together in the name of his bleeding, broken heart and life so that the chasm can be spanned. But if there's one thing he refuses and his followers refuse is to diminish the transaction of grace by suggesting there was no serpent on the cross in Numbers 21 and there'll be no serpent on the cross. He who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, became sin for us 
Unfortunately, a cheap transactional grace is a destruction of the doctrine of sin and the great indebtedness of humanity, and it makes it easy for all of us to come to the marketplace of religious ideas, get a little bit of assurance, and walk away without any sense of a life of costly grace and indebtedness to a lost world and a saving Savior. God forbid. And may he help each one of us to understand that if you remove the cross, which arraigns the sinner before the bar of justice, you have removed the bridge that connects them to freedom and deliverance from sin and new life in Christ. And no church service anywhere on the face of the planet can be so reconfigured without completely marring in a blasphemous and abominating way the very gospel itself. May the love that Jesus has for us nerve us to be the most loving, beautiful people to a lost world all the time and everywhere in our homes and in the marketplaces, in our works and in our recreation. But always, only, ever, I determine to know nothing among you except I know this, I'm a great sinner <laughs> and I have a far greater Savior. Amen and amen.